Hello, and welcome to the Screen Podcast Series, a set of conversations about the state of the science on social screening in healthcare settings. This work was conducted by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network, SIREN, at the University of California, San Francisco, and funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Welcome to the Siren Screen podcast series. I'm Amelia DeMarcus, an assistant professor and family physician at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's conversation is one of a series of episodes on the state of the science on social screening in healthcare settings, all stemming from a 2022 report that synthesized existing research on social screening in the United States. I'm excited today to have two speakers um, who I'll let introduce themselves. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Jadon Avey. I'm a health program analyst at South Central Foundation and former senior researcher, and I'm trained as a clinical psychologist. Thank you all for being here, honored guests. My Klingit names are Kutin and Tlakoish. In English, they call me Kyle Wark. I'm a raven from the Deshitan clan. I'm a researcher here at South Central Foundation. I've been here about five years, and I'm a cultural anthropologist by training. So excited to talk with you both today about asset-based screening in healthcare settings. And this topic is an offshoot of the SIREN Report's section on properties of social screening tools. And during today's discussion, Jadon and Kyle will share their thoughts about the existing research in this area and what they think needs to come next in this rapidly evolving area of social care practice. So Jadon and Kyle, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to just start off by saying that when we embarked on the review, we were really interested in asset-based screening, but didn't find much in the literature around screening tools designed to identify patient assets as opposed to risks. And as you and your team noted in your 2021 scoping review, most social screening tools focus on identifying risks. As an example, an asset-based approach might explore concepts like resilience and social networks, but instead we primarily have screening tools that are assessing uh, different forms of financial insecurity. So I'm really excited to talk to you both because of the work that you've been doing on asset-based screening, on strength-based screening. But first, can you tell me a little bit about South Central Foundation? Sure. Uh, South Central Foundation is built on the NUCA system of care. And that's a simple yet revolutionary belief that customer ownership and relationships are the most important tools in managing chronic disease, uh, controlling healthcare costs, and improving overall wellness of a population. NUCA is the Alaska native word for strong, giant structures and living things. And customer owner is the language that South Central Foundation uses to describe how people served by our system have dual role as both customers and owners of the healthcare system as a whole. Overall, our healthcare system is a tribally owned and operated healthcare organization in South Central Alaska that serves 65,000 Alaska Native American Indian people, and SCF offers over 80 health and wellness programs and employs more than 2,400 people. Services include primary care, behavioral health, dentistry, pharmacy, traditional healing, elder and youth programs, and SCF uh, also co-owns and co-manages the Alaska Native Medical Center Hospital in Anchorage. SCF's Relationship-based operational principles provide guidance from customer owners when improving systems and or developing new programs or services. And the principles are based on this belief that multidimensional wellness can only occur by effectively partnering with customer owners in a system of care designed by and for them 
when, where, and how they want it. And then lastly, I wanted to say that SCF practices tribal ownership of research, which means that the native community is in charge of research that involves the customer owner population. And SCF research review is put in place to review all research requests. And we have permission through that process to speak with you today. So grateful for that. And it's great to get some more background. Given the customer owner relationship and the tribal ownership of the research, would love to know more about how asset-based screening uh, developed and, and evolved at uh, South Central Foundation. So it it's evolved so far outside of the research realm, but it's moving that direction. And Kyle will talk a little bit more about that. But so asset-based screening is just helpful for getting a fuller perspective of individuals in the community. And, you know, it's inherently strengths-based um, rather than deficit or risk-based. And, you know, you think about income and education as assets, and you had referenced that earlier, like those are commonly thought of as assets, but it can definitely go beyond that. And pediatricians in our organization are using a strengthening families framework to build on five protective factors. Not that they're screening for these protective factors, but they're working towards these. And that's parental resilience, social emotional competence, knowledge of child development, social connections, and concrete supports in times of need. And those last two protective factors, social connections and concrete support in time of need, are often the types of assets not considered in risk-based screening. So, for example, is there someone in your life that could lend you $200 if needed? Or is there someone in your life that could watch your child if you're ill? Those are you know, important considerations. And, you know, oftentimes current social health questions are more about interpersonal violence or safety, which is definitely important to assess. But if someone isn't at risk for being unsafe or interpersonal violence, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have social connections or support in times of need. So the absence of risk does not indicate uh, the presence of an asset, uh, which is why they're important to assess. And um, can you tell me a little bit more about how you all started identifying it as being important to do these the strength-based screening? So our organization uses a host of screeners across programs. Some of these screeners include assets as well as risk, but we do not conduct universal asset-based screening. So SCF prefers to gain information through relationships, not through screeners, even if the screeners are asset-based. In terms of population health management approach, asset-based screening has contributed in, in four ways within our setting. Quality improvement and program evaluation, understanding customers through utilization of preventative services, evaluating eligibility and qualification for social programs, and with improving what we call action lists. Firstly, asset-based screening is, is a part of risk-based screening, as a part of risk-based screening, has been really a crucial element in quality improvement and program evaluation, and that's especially for programs that serve certain at-risk populations. So preg pregnant mothers uh, is, is definitely one. So secondly, although not an asset-based screening per se, evaluation of preventative services can provide insight into an individual's available time, availability, and interest as well as access to social supports. So if they're able to participate in, in preventative services. Thirdly, asset-based screening is a part of Medicaid applications. So our organization has a host of community resource specialists 
that facilitate eligibility screening, collection of information, and submission of applications. And we structure these data to allow for their use in quality improvement and program evaluation efforts across programs. And I'll say most recently, we've been able to look at how well our HEDIS metrics organization-wide are serving the subpopulation of people that are eligible for Medicaid. And lastly, you know, our population health management approach in our population health management approach, uh, we have what are called action lists. And these are lists of individuals that may be due for certain services or have a particular risk that may warrant outreach or precautionary action or follow-up on the part of an integrated care team. We offer integrated care services. And action lists typically have wash-in criteria and wash-out criteria. And those are the criteria that indicate an individual should be included on the list or those criteria that indicate they should not be on the list. So asset-based screening can inform washout criteria for action lists. And without updated screening information, and people could perpetually be on lists with an identified risk. And those washing out of an action list are often doing so because they have an asset or a protective factor say washing out of a cardiovascular disease action list because they have uh, blood pressure control for a certain period of time. So additionally, in some instances, this allows for interpretation of cross-membership and related action lists. Thanks. This is super helpful. I'd love to just touch back, um, and I apologize if we're planning on getting to this later, but given the relationship-driven approach that, uh, Jadon, you mentioned, if and how is data collected to, to be used at that population health level? In terms of screening or in general? For screening. So if if it is more kind of relationship-driven and not as standardized, if I'm understanding correctly, your the approach the approach to screening would love one to know kind of how that approach evolved at your um, organization, and then also if and how standardized data is collected to use at kind of the population health level. I would say NUCA system of care is about relationship, not so much about screeners, but we definitely do screening, depression screening. SBIRT screening, cervical cancer screening. Um, there's a host of screenings that are done in across different settings. We typically don't have universal screening. It's more program-based. You know, the same screeners that they're doing in a behavioral health clinic are not the same screeners that are being done in primary care. And so we have structured data elements that are, are able to be used for uh, understanding how how uh, services are being offered and how we're doing from a process perspective. We call them data pantries. We put together structured elements and can use them in multiple reports uh, for multiple purposes and once they're assembled in uh, staging tables. Jadon, could you speak a little to how the Social Determinants of Health Project tried to use our existing electronic health records to improve the visibility of SDOH for providers? So the SDOH project created cohorts so that programs could be evaluated in the way that they were providing services to certain at-risk populations. And then from a provider perspective, uh, it was also helpful for providers to understand you know, how many people on their panels have certain SDOH criteria or risks. Assets are mostly used, you know, that's still getting a little bit at risk, but you know, assets are, are the intention of this podcast. And that information wasn't as much shared with uh, providers, whereas it was used with the program to evaluate their eligibility for services. So if there's a change in 
in their assets and then they're eligible for services, then consumer resource people were able to uh, get people enrolled in services. And those were for the five different assets you mentioned? So this this is more for Medicaid applications, SNAP, WIC, can also help you register to vote and also help you with uh, accessing veterans benefits and just a variety of, of benefits. But they're able to put that information into electronic sheets that then make, so you answer one question one time, and if it's on multiple forms, it'll automatically go into those forms. So you don't have to answer the same question like five times, even if it's on five different forms. So helpful. And overall, what have your experiences been with the asset-based screening? What have you learned about it? Kyle and I really, uh, we learned that from community perspective, based on focus groups that we had done with stakeholders in our setting, that lists of social determinant of health risks or social needs can be quite stigmatizing. And so for our organization, you know, outside of what asset-based screening is already in effect for certain programs, government agencies or grants, reducing stigma of risk-based screening is a priority over asset-based screening. And we've attempted to address the potential for stigma in two, two main ways. There's a value in reframing stigmatizing elements of screening, and community engagement can aid in identifying potential sources of stigma and assist in identifying strategies to minimize stigma, especially as it relates to what you're calling topics. For example, you know, in the state of Alaska, it's Office of Children's Services involvement that could become changing guardianship. And food insecurity can become food secure. So that's the first point. The second strategy is that all of our screening is situated within an overall organizational strategy to reduce stigma, which includes integrated behavioral health, learning circles, which are similar to group medical visits, and an emphasis on sharing story and the customer owner provider relationship. So those are really the things that we've learned through asset-based screening. Great. And overall, why why do you think, or do you have thoughts on why asset-based screening is less prominent in the kind of national dialogue and interest on, on social screening? So it's a hard topic because many agencies and efforts are based on risks and deficits. Funders tend to want to address problems. And the evaluation of efforts tend to focus on the decrease in negative things like lowering the prevalence or incidence rates of certain things, for example. And asset-based screening seems to run into the same issues as the evaluation of prevention efforts. You're trying to measure the absence of development of condition. Again, overall, our community feels like there's a balance between risks and protective factors or assets that's important to, to maintain in an assessment. And um, protective factors may improve inoculation to certain stressors or bounce back ability from certain negative health outcomes. And leveraging the strengths of Alaska Native culture and the community is a significant part of what has made SCF successful. And so we're conducting research and striving to move forward the assessment of resilience from an Indigenous perspective. This might be a good spot for me to step in and talk about my research project on cultural factors related to resilience for Alaska Native peoples, which I call the CRAN project. So one of the issues around asset-based screening and protective factors 
assessments is that they're, they're really hard to define. They're really hard to quantify in a lot of instances. There was a study that I found that was trying to look at ways of measuring resilience or psychological resilience that identified 102 articles that were talking about resilience, but they had to reject 70 of them because those 70 articles couldn't define what they meant by resilience. And so they're, they're trying to measure something that they don't even have a name for, that they don't even have a quantification for. There are um, many, many studies and, and advocates that point to culture as medicine and culture as sources of strength for Alaskan Native peoples. But what exactly is meant by that? What exactly do you mean by engaging with your culture? What does it mean to have uh, connections to your culture? That's actually, again, a really slippery sort of topic to identify or quantify. And that was the impetus for me creating this project. I really wanted to find a way to assess these strength-based systems that we've been discussing and really try to put a finger on what is meant by culture and cultural factors related to resilience. In order to understand resilience, I decided that'd be easiest to look at the opposite, uh, to look at what's called historical trauma. So in a lot of colonized indigenous groupings, and other peoples throughout the world, the history of colonialism damaged their culture, damaged our ability to relate to each other in our language, through our spirituality, uh, even our houses and our clothing and our food systems got disrupted. And that impacted our, um, not only our way of life, but also our quality of life. Uh, it impacted our ability to really express ourselves freely and enjoy all the benefits of, of life. So there was a really famous study that looked at historical trauma and found a way to assess it, that found a way to quantify the impact of historical trauma. And that was one of the gold standard indications that I found of this, this topic of historical trauma, which is by a lady named Braveheart and her collaborator, De Bruyne, I think is how you pronounce her name. And they had a scale that measured, I think it was about 10 or 15 different items. And it collected them into these kind of domains like lack of access to land, lack of access to your language, you know, dying young, struggling with alcohol or other drugs. And, and these are the ways that having our cultures disrupted through the course of colonialism impacted people living today. So even though the massacres that occurred in the lower 48 during the course of colonialism, they may have happened hundreds of years ago. People are still reminded of those things. They're still living with those things. There's a famous account, I think, of President Lincoln, actually, who has a very stellar reputation amongst most Americans, ordered 46, I believe, Lakota men to be hanged. The Lakota people still think about that. They still have ill will towards the government because of that action, that, that harm that was perpetuated against their peoples. And because those things are still living with us, they're still impacting our people on a daily basis. So what's the opposite of that? What, what are the ways in which cultural factors, these legacies of our ancestors are propping us up? What are the ways that they're helping us get through the daily grind and to help us hold our heads high well, it was something that I had actually seen a lot when I was a kid, which is this poster called The Traditional Values of Alaska that really sparked the impetus of the assessment that I wanted to develop. 
It was put together in the, I think, the late 80s by the Alaska Association of School Boards. And what they did was simply go out to communities across Alaska and ask elders to get together and say, what does it mean to be a good Anupiak person? What does a, a young Yupik person need to learn and, and learn how to do in order to be a good Yuk, to be a good person of the, the Yupik people? And they gathered all these statements together. Some of them are culture-based, like Klingit people. Some of them are region-based, like Kotzebue. So it, it, it's not a full representation of all the cultural groupings across Alaska. But they collected 200 different statements, maybe, maybe more. And there are things like hunter success or gather knowledge and wisdom from the elders. And I realized that there was a great deal of power behind these statements, and I wanted to find a way to systematize it. So I looked at that grouping of questions from the historical losses scale and said, these are my domains now. These are the things that are important, like connection to the land, connection to language, connection to culture, connection to elders. And I began to map these 200 statements onto those domains, onto the domain of land, onto the domain of language. And I began to um, compress them so that there were a dozen statements that were along the lines of hunter success. And those all got grouped together into land practical skills or something like that. Um, and in the end, I came up with 10 different domains that were related to land, language, spirituality, relationships, culture, elders, respect, trust, sobriety, and humor. And all of those were derived from the historical losses scale, except humor. Humor actually was something that came up across the state. And it's not something that a lot of people who think about Alaska Native and American Indian people think of as, as being a, we're, we're often depicted as being very stoic, um, you know, very straight-faced. But actually, um, they say if you go into an Alaska Native community and they're not teasing you, they don't like you which I think is a great statement. And so humor was seen as something that humor can get you through hard times. You know, that that was, um, it's not a quote, but it was something like that, that I found in several of these elders' teachings on, on the poster. And from these, you know, roughly 10 or 11 domains, I created 44 questions that I'm now testing out in a research project. So it's a full research project that's got a research protocol that was approved by the Alaska Area Institutional Review Board and the South Central Foundation Travel Review Process. And it's undergoing data collection now. I'm hoping to get uh, 300 participants so that I can get a pretty robust sample that I can test these, these questions against. And that'll give us a way to assess connection to culture. How often are you able to engage in practical skills related to the land? How often are you able to utilize your heritage language? And what I found interesting wasn't just um, in the language category, just as an example, it wasn't just about speaking Klingit. It wasn't just about you know, using our heritage languages. It was about speaking carefully. It was about being a good listener. And these are things, these are some of the teachings of the elders that are really important to consider when you talk about connection to culture. Culture isn't just songs and dances. Culture isn't just feasts and rituals. Culture is about listening from the heart. Culture is about speaking from the heart. Culture is about uh, understanding the universe and our place in it and embracing all spiritual traditions, being, being respectful of other people's spirituality. It's not just the traditional spirituality of your people. Relationships aren't just families and communities. It's about generosity. 
It's about harmony with your neighbors and the people that you live with in your community. Um, culture can also be about discipline as well as traditional activities. So these are some of the things that I found that stood out to me, the review of that traditional values of Alaska poster. And that's how I've gone about trying to create a way to measure and, and quantify connection to culture and connection to our heritage as Alaska Native peoples and American Indian peoples. But it took months and months and months of work to try and get this far. And it's taken years of trying to get enough data together to put this research project into uh, place. And that can be how slippery, and this will just be an initial stage. This is just piloting this project. So it can be extremely difficult to develop a questionnaire like this and to turn it into a robust screener. But I've already got interest from within South Central Foundation. The traditional healing department actually was looking for a way to assess culture and connection to culture. And they asked me if they could use my scale for some of their internal evaluations. And I told them it's not a tested scale, it's not a validated scale, and they recognize that, but it's still a data point. It's still any way to begin to look at the quantification of connection to culture. So I think it's a really promising direction of research. Wow, that is such important work, and it's amazing how far you've come and the way you're going about doing the work. It, it's very practical and mindful, and love to hear that you are validating it since many of our even social risk tools, as, as we found in our report and as, as prior work your team has done, has found that many of these tools are not validated. That's correct. Even the so-called gold standard psychological resilience measure that I found, the Connor Davidson Resilience Scale, which is used very widely as a measure of psychological resilience, as far as I could tell in the literature, has only been validated in one American Indian community. So it wasn't even an Alaska Native community. So it's hard to tell in some of these cases how much the psychological resilience or, or resilience measures actually measure elements that are relevant to minority groups, to American Indian and Alaska Native peoples. There are questions in the Connor Davidson questionnaire that relate to spirituality and cosmology, but they might not be the types of spirituality or the types of spiritual engagement that are most meaningful and salient to Alaska Native peoples. I think that brings up a great point when we think about our just the screening tools that we use for for social risks and how we're deploying them across cultures and across languages without additional testing, which is a bit is a bit worrisome. Would love to know kind of how you see this your work moving forward and and if and how you'd think about it being integrated or separate from the other kind of social screening that's happening and if and how it could be tailored to different communities as well outside of of your own. That is one of the things that I like about this resilience scale that I'm developing is that it's developed with Alaska Native peoples in mind, but it actually is something that can be relevant to other peoples and other groupings. Being out on the land and connecting to nature is something that is talked about as a resilience measure for any number of different cultural groupings. It's something that's talked about within Western societies as well. Practical skills of navigating the land are important for almost anybody living in Alaska, for example, uh, just due to the kind of outdoor lifestyles that a lot of Alaskans uh, maintain and the situations that a lot of us find ourselves in, especially those who live out in more remote parts of rural Alaska. Careful speech is something that everybody can pay more attention to. Uh, being a good listener is not nearly valued enough in American society as probably it should be, or that it used to be in older, in more traditional times within American society. There's a um, 
a saying that I encountered from educational advocacy in Aotearoa, New Zealand, that what's good for everyone is not necessarily good for Maori, but what's good for Maori is good for the world. So if you can try and find the people that are most marginalized or that are most most heavily excluded from the systems that you're producing and try to find a way to advocate for those marginalized groupings, then you're probably going to find something that'll benefit everyone. You know, if you implement, you know, disability accessibility uh, safeguards in, you know, in your systems, in your education, in your in your conferences and something like that, probably everyone is going to benefit from those systems being put in place. Such a good point. And I realize our listeners can't tell that I've been just nodding my head nonstop. Um, thank you for all those really just powerful and important points. Would love to know how you all have been thinking about asset-based screening in terms of improving patient care and experience. I don't want to draw conclusions from everything you've been saying. Uh, what I would say is our organization is big on not asking the same question a gazillion times. No organization likes to ask people the same questions repeatedly, and nobody likes to have the same questions asked repeatedly. So from our perspective, the work with the community resource specialists where they're asking questions and then it's uh, the answers are being populated across varying forms, like that's an important thing so that the questions don't have to be asked a bunch of times. And in terms of just how asset-based screening can improve patient care experience, like asking the same questions, yes, improving programs that that serve individuals that do have certain risks, but also when somebody doesn't need to be in a program anymore or somebody's on a list and one of these population health action lists, when they have enough assets or they're doing well enough that they can move off of the list, that's a success. So part of this is that that, that can be valued. Okay, you know, we've addressed this. You know, that's a conversation that they'll have with their provider. So I think that's another big part of this that I, I haven't said outright is that all of this measurement, it's all to enhance the conversation with providers. And that way, providers in their relationship with customer owners can, can have a more meaningful relationship and can uh, know the people that they're serving better and can honor successes with them. Great. Well, I think, Kyle, you, you touched on this a bit, but would love both your thoughts on just the evidence that we need to better integrate asset-based screening into social screening, acknowledging that there's still a lot of evidence we need around um, social screening. But in general, where would you like to see this work move forward in terms of generating evidence and having evidence to scale and sustain this, this work? Well, I, I do think there is value to including Alaska Native and American Indian peoples in the validation of other forms of screening, even even this, you know, the Connor Davidson Resilience Scale that I mentioned, which is the gold standard, has only been evaluated once in an American Indian community. So in order to figure out if that's truly a blanket measure of resilience, you need to test it in multiple different communities. And that just isn't being done currently. And trying to make sure that you know, marginalized groups, minority groups are included in the design of these scales, are included in the development of the research programs and things like that, are that's really the type of approach that South Central Foundation takes in our work is trying to include the community 
And, and, and that means, you know, everybody within the South Central Foundation organization, you know, the different hierarchies, the, the board of directors, I think, sets the research agenda, which really determines what's being researched in the research department. But the head of our research department is Alaska Native, you know, so we just, we really have that feeling of inclusion and inclusivity in research development, you know, research design, dissemination, all of those different aspects of research uh, were inclusive of the Alaska Native community, or at least we try to be to a very high degree and certainly to a much higher standard than most similar organizations. So trying to get that broader inclusivity in how these asset-based screeners might be developed. I don't know anything about the African-American community. I don't know anything about the, the Latinx community. And in order to develop screeners that are meaningful for them, we'd need to include African-American peoples in the development of those screeners. We'd need to include African-American people and Latinx people in the research protocol design, in the research dissemination design, in, in deciding, you know, are LGBTQ people and their culture being adequately represented in how these measures are put together and utilized? You know, the, the reduction of stigma that, that Jadon spoke to before has multiple dimensions to it that could include ethnicity, that could include gender and sexuality, that could include all of these different dimensions of humanity. So trying to make sure that your research program is inclusive, I think, is the best way to try and make sure that the product is meaningful. And you know, there are needs, I'm sure, to specify and to specialize and to make sure that you've got screeners that are more tailored to this community or that community. The one-size-fit-all approach just might not be feasible for this type of uh, research. And if that's the case, then you know we're not going to find that out if we're just testing it on middle-aged, upper-class white males. Such great points. And your last one really touches on that kind of struggle between trying to collect uniform data that we can use across sites and kind of population health level versus really tailoring to specific populations and communities. And I know that's something that the whole community around social care has been struggling with, how to share and collect data across sites for kind of population health level interventions, but also to make sure that we are being appropriate and not stigmatizing the individual communities where we're collecting this data. I know we're approaching time and in closing, would love to just give you both a chance to raise any additional points or if there's one kind of most important take-home point you want to reinforce for our listeners or your hopes for the future of this social screening work. I guess if there's a couple of take-home points, I would really say that you know, these lists and population health management on these social needs can be very stigmatizing and having assets or protective factors or, or more balanced language on what things are called are really important for this because, you know, this information, it's been provided and it's uh, the health system is entrusted with it to do good and to improve services. And we've heard from focus groups and, you know, in the wrong hands, this could be used to further stigmatize or further marginalize people. And so the work that that needs to be done and the perspective that needs to be taken and the language that that should be used should be one to empower people uh, to increase access for services, to provide more more resources where people are under resourced for the betterment of health of all people. Yeah, and I would just say that it's really easy to be complacent 
and to kind of stop and feel like you're in a good place and stop questioning if you've got the right measure, if you've got the right approach. You know, I don't know that the 44 items that I've got in my questionnaire are the most relevant, are the most meaningful, the most salient for Alaska Native peoples. I don't know that the way that I'm going about testing it is going to be definitive. It's still possible to be stigmatizing, even with the type of work that I'm doing. I think it could be easy for Alaska Native people to read through this list and feel ashamed that, oh man, I'm, I'm not, you know, going out on the land all the time. You know, I'm not hunting and fishing all the time. You know, I don't know my culture and my songs and dances and things like that. And to really feel, feel bummed about themselves. And that's the furthest from what I would hope that this scale could do for Alaska Native peoples, but that's still possible. And, you know, even if I, you know, test it with 300 people, you know, there are 100,000 Alaska Native peoples or something like that, you know, 30, 300 people, that may be statistically significant, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be right for everybody. And, you know, urban natives uh, versus rural natives are going to have very different experiences. So it's just, it's really easy, I think, to feel like you did your due diligence, you did your study, you got your AAIB approval, but that doesn't mean that this is what the elders would want me to do. You know, this is something that I picked up as a research project based on my experiences working in a healthcare setting. This is, you know, my experiences going through uh, graduate school to become an anthropologist. And it's informed by a lot of good intentions, but we know what they say about good intentions. So it's just really important to keep going and to keep refining and to keep trying to make sure that you've got the best, most helpful thing that you can do. Thank you both for those closing remarks and just great important reminders that we should all all have in the forefront of our mind moving forward with this work. I want to just thank you both so much for the time you spent talking with me today and for all this amazing work that you're doing. I really look forward to seeing all the work that's going to be coming out of South Central Foundation. So thank you all. And we will try to post on our website some additional information where our listeners can find more about your work. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Plain goodness. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this special summer screen break episode of Siren Coffee and Science, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Andrew Fankush does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art and Aurélien Jukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produced this limited podcast series. Find out more by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.